0: This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org.
1: I was talking with someone at lunch, and we were talking about how science is a community based thing. So you don't just learn from a textbook, you learn from people. And so you learn patterns of behavior and structures of thought that way. Um, And that is one of my favorite things that I learned through blues and swing dancing is it's very cultural, so you learn through the community. It's made me a better teacher, I think. I hope. My students haven't commented either way yet, so <laughs> we'll find out. Um, so what I plan to do um, with today's today's talk is to start with the de-evolution of determinism in physics, so starting kind of like a historical view. I've picked a particular set of topics to show how they evolved through time, um, and then I'm just going to eventually get to the what I consider the modern era. I'm sure philosophers will have a different opinion of when the modern era starts. Um, I know that that's postmodern modern, I'm not sure. 1930s. Uh, so that's kind of the plan for today. So before I start into that, I wanted to point out, I'm going to start with defining my terms, like what is physics? So what my boundaries of explanation are. Um, starting with classical determinism and determinateness, uh, which are not the same. Um, And then talk a little bit where those ideas start to lose their grasp. So we, we move from a place where we think we understand exactly what everything's doing, and then what happens with chaos, and then moving on into quantum mechanics, modern physics, and indeterminateness of particles or energy. The slide numbers are in the bottom right corner. So if there's something you want me to come back to at some point in time, that may help. If the text is really small, I'm sorry, it wouldn't let me change it. Mm -hmm. Um, So what is physics? Um, What is physics? Physics is the study of the physical universe. So it is, I'm limiting this not specifically just to matter, but matter and energy, things that can influence or in some way perform cause and effect interactions with things that you can touch, taste, see, smell, here. So it's one of the oldest scientists if you include astronomy, which a lot of concepts still do include. And so what I'm doing with today's talk is I'm starting with astronomy and moving forward from there. So this picture here that I've included uh, is not from a fancy observatory. This is a compilation of, it's either 5,500 or 55,000 deep photo pictures from an amateur astronomer. Um, And so what he did is he tiled all the photos together. I have a much larger resolution photo at the very end if you'd like to look at it, but it's an amazing feat for not spending millions of dollars to send something up into the sky, but just to use the tools we have available to us. Um, So speaking of that, so all of the stuff that I'm gonna talk about is inspired by observations. So we're talking about the modern scientific method. I see a thing, I observe a thing, hear, taste, touch, smell. Um, So I observe a thing. I say, why does the thing do what it is? Do what it does. Why is it what it is? And then from that, say, okay, I'm going to create a hypothesis. If that hypothesis is true, I'm going to structure. I'm going to structure a test. I'm going to perform the test. And then if that test works out, then yay. If it doesn't, it needs modification and around we go. So this is inductive-based reasoning, right? You're taking something you observed, and you're inferring from that something more about a general theory, something more about a more universal thing about the universe. Um, so that's kind of this, what I'm limiting myself to, which means most of my discussion here will start 1500s-ish and later. So we're starting with Renaissance physics. And the dates are variable depending on where you think the Renaissance started in different parts of Europe. I want to give an honorable mention here to Aristarchus, who was a Greek natural philosopher. Um, He did some amazing work on the position and size of the moon and the earth. He was actually the first to postulate that the earth went around the sun. Um, So a lot of people say that this was the Copernican revolution, that idea actually did come about earlier. So it was postulated earlier, but not based on evidence yet. He started doing some of that, and a lot of that was lost. The Roman Empire's emphasis on physics and mathematics that was specifically engineering-based means that we didn't make a lot of theoretical revolutions during that time. So about when Copernicus, who was actually an English canon, uh, sorry, not English canon, Catholic canon, um, so, one of those faith in science moments, love them. Uh, so, he was the first one to put forth this idea that the Earth went around the Sun, hence the Copernican model. Um, so, what he was doing there was saying, we have a certain set of observations that we've been making. They make more sense if we change the way we look at the universe. So, if we reframe the system, this makes more sense. Um, Galileo really just He didn't come up with it for himself, but he was a lot more ornery about promulgating it. Um, One of the things that he did is instead of, if I remember correctly, not publishing in Latin, which was the academic language of the time, but in Italian, I think is what made it more accessible to everyone. And that was what raised the ire of the um, power holders of the time. So we've got these people. Actually, Galileo, one of my favorite things about him. So he's doing observations and trying to base his understanding of the Copernican model off of observations. And so what he did, he heard about this thing called a telescope. And he built one without ever actually seeing one, which I thought was really amazing. Uh, As he's like, oh, there's this thing with glass and they refract stuff. And so here we go. Um, He built one. And so it was him who discovered the Galilean moons of Jupiter and recognized that there was a certain periodicity into them. And so if the Galilean moons are orbiting Jupiter, then it's possible that not everything orbits the Earth. And so from there, extended the idea. Um, And so now is where we have this experimental basis, this observation that extends and changes the way we think about things. Um, Adding on to that, Tycho Brahe, Um, also kind of missed, you hear a lot about Kepler and Kepler's three laws. So he took this idea of orbits being circular and changed it and said, maybe not circular, maybe a more general mathematical function would fit this data. And so he says, well, if circles don't quite do it, we get this weird retrograde motion if we only use circles. What if we use ellipses? What if we do this instead? Um, So I really like Taco, Tycho Brahe. He was a really strong emphasizer of observations, starting from the physically observed materials. Um, he had, there's this excellent picture I couldn't find again, of him lying on the floor and he'd cut a hole in the ceiling of his observatory. And he had placed grids, markings along the outside so that he could lie on the floor and measure the location of things from night to night. Uh, And the the beauty of that is that he was making, if I remember correctly, half degree measurements, which was amazingly accurate for the time. And it was this 10 10 odd years of data of just him lying there, making all these measurements of the planetary positions with respect to the celestial background that he gave to Kepler and said, make math. (laughs) That was basically what happened. Um, And so we've got this, we have physical universe and we're taking from that, trying to figure out some mathematical representation. Um, So I want to take a moment here um, and acknowledge what Dr. Ellersen said is that physicists do tend to say, the math works, so we're gonna go with it. Um, And that was something that Newton started doing here is that he used his law of universal gravitation and said, it works for two bodies and it has an analytical perfect solution. So you got elliptical orbits, everyone's happy, yay, the math corresponds to the universe. We call it good. Whether or not we understand exactly what R is other than a measurement on our picture. So this is what that looks like. Um, so what we do in this kind of calling it good method is called perturbation theory. So you take the full math. So you have this one which is the moon on the earth and we've got the earth from the sun if i bl- remember correctly and then we've got this weird cross term that happens because there is angular momentum that is in quotations throwing the moon away from the earth it's not what happens right it has a particular dependence on a one direction and it's pulled inwards right but it's wanting to go away and again i'm anthropomorphizing the moon. It doesn't want things as far as we know, but just saying that's the easiest way to explain it. So what we can do is we can describe the moon and the earth gravity together and we get this plot. So you just add the two functions, yay. Um, and then you add the fact that there is this angular momentum that in quotations throws an object away from the system. And you get this fun thing here. Now it's kind of difficult to see there's these one two, three, four blue marks that show what are called the Lagrange points, so places where there is either a stable or an unstable equilibrium point. All of this that we understand about the Earth-Moon-Sun system is all assuming that the Moon is small enough to be a perturbation. So we're assuming like we have the Earth and we have the Sun, and they work just fine and we can solve that system. And if I put a third body into the system, I'm gonna assume it's small. So we're gonna tr- assume that the mass of the moon is small, which kind of is, it's roughly a hundredth of the earth. So we're gonna assume that that's my expansion parameter. We're gonna expand my whole function in a Taylor series, which, yeah, okay, i got getting nods from that one. Um, so you expand it in a Taylor series, you drop the higher order terms and you call it good enough. Um, and that's what you get here with these Lagrange points, And actually really interesting thing I did not know. Um, so two of the Lagrange points are stable equilibrium, and we collect asteroids in them. They get stuck there, and they just flow around. Uh, we actually have a number of satellites that we put up in the unstable ones, which are good because they don't collect stuff. So you put a satellite there, you give it some rockets, and it just sort of it balances itself on like the top of a gravitational potential energy hill. Um, so I was at a add a talk. I did it by Zoom. um, The Society of Catholic Scientists, they were talking about putting another observatory out of one of the Lagrange points. And it just sounds amazing. I love it. That you can take advantage of this non-exact understanding, but this good enough understanding. So we're at this point where we're like, okay, good enough. Are there any exact solutions? Does it actually work? And it turns out there are several hundred exact solutions to this system for how these three bodies will orbit. Here are a few of them. It takes a lot of time to find these because the system in a Taylor series approximation, good enough, doesn't necessarily mean that you get a closed orbit. So your object may wander off into the middle of the universe. You're like, well, that was fun, bye. It's not stuck with us. Um, So I believe if I remember correctly, these plots were all for equal mass, three objects, So your expansion parameter is not mass. Your expansion parameter is, if I remember correctly, one of the distances or one of the velocities. So this one was published. This was 2017 where they found these and just computer programming, brute force, plug-in numbers, wait until you actually iterate enough that you get back to the beginning. So, I mean, look at... Look at these. Some of them are just like, I'm just going to hang out here somewhere along this axis, but never actually on the axis. And these guys will rotate back and forth. This is not a crossing, right? You've got them, they're just kind of stuck on either side. They slingshot in and come out again. This one slingshots in and comes out again. And then your sort of center of mass would be somewhere around here. The images are just fascinating. But point being here, is that we have a system the three body problem has been like the holy grail of solving physics for roughly 200 years right starting with Newton right who's doing perturbations he's like calls it good enough but no one actually had exact solutions so we can find some exact solutions but we would like to have an actual like analytical solution does it exist so one of the things that we had a problem with is, when you do this Taylor series expansion of the exact potential, you don't take any approximations, all the masses are equal, all of the parameters are large enough to make a difference, we end up with a Taylor series that diverges. So, what that means is we're getting into something called chaos. So you get the perceived random behavior of a system due to the system's sensitivity to initial conditions. So, in the differential equation that we have here, if you plug in numbers that are 1.000001 and 1.000002, instead of getting two orbits that look like each other, you get two very drastically different behaviors. Um, so, one classic example. I like this plot. This is like cool. I have a double pendulum. This is technically not a double pendulum plot, but the bifurcation diagram looks close enough. And I couldn't find an exact one, so I'm sorry. This is a misapplication, misrepresentation of data. But it looks like the same idea. Um, So if I have a double pendulum, moving forward to the next slide, which is like this, you have two pendula that are connected. So one hangs from the other one. And if I let them go slowly enough with small enough amplitudes, they kind of swing together. It's called a normal mode. Or you can have them swing opposite, and it's another normal mode. Um, But if I give them really large amplitudes, so like one of them is at 45 degrees, and one's at 46 degrees, The interesting thing happens is that we get two different kinds of behavior. It'll still be periodic, but there's this moment right here where the amplitudes are just different enough that it get very different periods. And so the behaviors diverge. And the thing is, it'll happen over and over again. They'll diverge, they'll diverge. Sometimes they converge again, which is really cool. You get this threefold plot, three different periods, and then they go crazy again. So this is what we mean by chaos we mean that I have a differential equation. I have a thing to solve. There is a math that I can use to solve it, but solving it is a pain. It doesn't give us anything closed form. We don't know what's happening. You just have to make sure you measure things really, really well and hope for the best. Um, So this this is that example. So if you do small amplitude, those of you who've had an introductory physics class, one of the things that you solve is a simple pendulum or maybe even a physical pendulum, right? Like a ruler pivoting from a point or a stopwatch hanging from the end of a string. That object can be written out in as a differential equation. The problem is the gravity term has a sine of theta in it. So it's nonlinear. If you make the amplitude small and you do the Taylor series expansion and everyone's happy sine of theta is approximately theta and I get a linear differential equation, which is analytically solvable and I know exactly what's gonna happen to the pendulum and yay. If it's big, right, if any one of these theta one or theta two amplitudes is big, and this pendulum is not fixed in the lower half plane, it can rotate all the way around 360 degrees. And the bottom one can is two. It's, there was a really cool article that I could have borrowed a picture from, but couldn't find it. Um, so M2 can actually rotate through and around past M1 in uh, 360 degrees as well. So it can like flip past itself which gives it a really funky motion, right? It can go up and down and around. If you start them off together, one of them has a different period, and so it's gonna loop back faster and then they end up getting tangled, except they don't, and then they move through each other, it's so fun. Watching these go is one of those, like watching a Zamboni, right? You just watch it go around, you're like, whoa. So it's really fun to do. It's great to watch, really hard to solve. So this was, the, this was our, our example of chaotic behavior where it's, really difficult to solve the problem, but in principle, we believe it can be done. So the attitude at the time coming into the 18, late 1800s is that we have these mathematical representations of the physics and we believe that they can be solved. We believe that the behavior of the universe is determinable by the math and predictable. It's a thing, it's gonna do a thing, we can figure out what the thing is, we're good. So that's the coming up to the 1800s. So I really liked this this discussion. So this is again, the three body problem that we're trying to solve exactly, right? This is the 17th century through to the 19th century, the holy grail of the time. Um, And so the King of Sweden for his, I think it was 60th birthday, posed this problem to the scientific world and says, I want you to solve this as some series expansion and show that the solution converges. And Poincaré is like, okay. And he, what he does is he breaks the set of space of solutions into three regimes. One he calls regime two, which is formally convergent and everyone's happy and you get stable solutions, right? The periodic behavior of these three gravitationally attracted objects. So if they were uniformly convergent, they would give us the general integral of these equations. I state that this is not possible. I did not add the italics. This was him, he was very liberal with the italics. Um, Also, this is in a translated form, so it's possible this was not exactly the way he said it. Um, So this is close to the beginning of the text. This is close to the end of the text. Um, And it's roughly 270 pages long. So there's a very rigorous proof that he puts out that says, if I expand the gravitational potential energy in the specific type of series, In the specific case of the three-body problem that we have studied for the 270 pages, and consequently also in the general case, Linsett's series do not converge uniformly for all values of the arbitrary constants integration that they contain. So he has just shown that the math is insufficient to the problem. The pattern is not determinable. That being said, they still believed that the physics was determinable, that the thing would not just randomly appear and disappear and teleport through space, that its path was determinable, but not by the mathematics. So they saw this as a failure of tools, not as a failure of physical reality. Okay, so there's an indeterminateness of the tools, not the reality. Um, But this was the beginning of chaos theory, which was like, okay, Stuff doesn't work. How badly does it not work? And so you get this idea of, so Hadamard shortly afterward, 1898, um, I found the title in original French. What he did, so just touching on Dr. Ulrichson's talk, we have this surface, a 2 surface, don't know what that means. But if you have something, a pair of of objects rolling around on this surface that can collide and interact, all possible paths of those two objects will diverge. So what Hadamard proved here is that there are no stable equilibria. There are no closed periods. Every single path will diverge from every other single path. So this was the first completely chaotic system. I'm going to this is a this is a Russian name. This is one of the transliterations, Lyapunov, if I'm saying it correctly. Um I didn't find the original title in Russian, sorry. But what but what Lyapunov did Um, As all great Russian mathematicians, I love the field. They are so rigorous and so on the ball with what they're trying to say. Basically said here is that we have this system. Can I say how badly things diverge? Can I quantify how chaotic the system is? Um, And so what he does with this is says, if I make a small change in the function, how badly is the exponential divergence? So it's like, I have a small change, delta Z naught. The next function that happens later on in time, this new delta Z naught is multiplied by E to the lambda T. And so lambda is your Lyapunov exponent. So that was was the beginning of the field as a whole. So it's like, okay, we know that things are not working. Can we start putting names to how it doesn't work? And this, this is as far as I can get into chaos theory, other than knowing that it is its own subset of mathematics Computer science, um, physics, all of those things. I will point out that this is this idea of chaos is extremely important if you do any programming. So, if you don't use the right kind of bit size for your numbers, you get cutoffs in your data, and your your numbers will diverge drastically. So, if you're doing any programming, um, floating points are friend. Um, just pay attention to those errors that propagate and create drastically different answers from what you intended. So that's the classical regime. That takes us up to the beginning of the 1900s where we're like, okay, the world is determinant, but our tools fail us. We just have to develop enough mathematics to describe the things. And mathematics has cut up to some of these problems. Um, Someone in, I think it was 1990 proposed a general solution to the three body problem, which I thought was cool. I haven't read it, I'm sorry. Um, But we're here at the beginning of the 1900s where quantum mechanics is making its inroads into the theory and where we have individual particles that have other types of interactions other than gravity. So we've got our electric interactions, we've got our weak interactions, we've got our strong interactions all throwing up in there. Um, We've got this idea that particles are, are particles, but they can also be waves, right? So they can sometimes travel through each other. They can tunnel, right? They may or may not be where you expect them to be. So you've got these probability distributions for our wave functions. Um, Our wave functions usually describe the mass of the object, the spin of the object, the charge of the object, and various other ways that you've arranged that spin, where they're going, what momentum they have, their energy, all of those things. So we have this idea of wave functions. I've included in here. Some of the most fundamental wave functions, if you've taken a quantum mechanics class and you've solved three-dimensional and time-independent Schrodinger's equation, you get these radial wave functions. This specifically is the wave function squared. So we have this, this weird thing coming up. We've come up with this tool to describe reality called a wave function. But that wave function itself is not a measurable property. I can't say and be like, that's the wave function. What I can find is the wave function squared. And so we're like, Okay, I have a thing I can do math to, and I get an observable, everyone's okay with that. Those wave functions can change as particles interact with each other. You can lose energy, you can gain energy, you can run into objects and change your momentum. All of these things can happen, but things like the mass of the particle, the spin of the particle, and the charge of the particle are still fixed. Um, As an interesting note, Uh, The same things can be said of black holes. The only three measurable things that you can get from a black hole are its mass, which you can measure via gravity, its spin, and its charge. So black holes have charge. Um, It can change mass, right? It can change charge, which are all of those. Oh, the name of the various people is escaping me. But there are various solutions to how they will evolve with time. Uh, But the point being is that an object, like a particle, has a fixed mass, charge, and spin. Which way the spin points you can change, its energy you can change, but those three things are fixed. So, entanglement. This was one of those first interesting things. We have these wave functions, right? And these wave functions have specific properties. And that wave function can evolve. And the interesting thing that happens with that is that if the wave function evolves, you start off with a single source, um, my favorite is a photon that gets too close to a black hole and it gets perturbed by the black hole and destabilizes and turns into a positron and electron. This is where Hawking radiation comes from. So that pair of particles together has to have the same amount of energy as the photon had before, right? But you've now produced mass. So this is where Einstein's E equals mc squared come from. We didn't violate conservation of energy. We just changed that energy to mass. Cool fine we can do it the same thing can happen my personal favorite the higgs right one of the ways that we find the higgs in particle detectors is we look for particles that go off in opposite directions like bottom anti bottom pairs so a bottom and an anti quark of the bottom so the antimatter version of the bottom quark so you get this pair and they go in opposite directions and they have opposite spin so the higgs is a special particle it is a scalar particle it has no spin The weird thing about quantum mechanics, so this system says, if I have my original wave function and it splits, I know that the two particles have to have opposite spin, but I can't just say, okay, the bottom was spin down and the anti-bottom was spin up. It turns out that in propagating those different wave functions, you violate their ability to be fermions. And so the only way to solve that equation is to produce what we call a singlet state. This one over root two is because it has to be normalized. If I contract these states and integrate them over all space, I better not get more than two particles or one state, right? It has to be normalizable. The probability of finding the particles better be one. If it's not, you've created things and we have a problem. So this particular state called the singlet state says that if one of them is down, the other one's up. If this one is up, then the other one better be down. Each of those particles has spin half but the orientation of that particle can change. And they are connected. One of them has to be the opposite of the other. And so here's where we have the problem. This is a really long quote. Um, So Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen had this excellent paper in 1935. I think it was one of the documents that I gave to you. So we're in this space. The elements of physical reality cannot be determined a priori by philosophical conditions. So we're transitioning from, deductive reasoning to inductive reasoning, but must be found by an appeal to results of experiments and measurements. A comprehensive definition of reality is, however, unnecessary for our purpose. So this is another one of those physicists call it good enough. Um, We shall be satisfied with the following criterion, that if there is a measurable quantity, that there has to be a like a physical reality that corresponds to the quantity. So if I can measure spin, then that spin must be real. It must be a thing that exists in and of itself. It must be a determined thing. So what we do is we have a source. So let this be the Higgs or a photon that decomposes into a positron-electron pair, any number of things. The classic example that Bohm used, which I'll get to later, is a pion, which also is spin zero, decaying into, I believe it was also electron-positron electron pairs. So you have two spin-half particles that go in opposite directions just for simplicity. They could go anywhere. It's easy to make them go in opposite directions to conserve momentum. And I have two detectors. Now, if these two detectors are both measuring spin in the vertical direction, then one of them will measure up and the other one will measure down. And that is always a given because the spin has to be conserved. The total spin has to be zero. So if one of them is up, the other one is down. This is the idea. If you measure both of them in the same direction, you better get the same result. What the EPR paradox says is that if I measure different things, so I'm measuring spin, I'm still measuring spin, or I'm measuring two what they call incommutable operators. So like position and momentum, or the time that something gets there and the frequency of that thing right? Those um, cannot be measured at the same time. You measure one, you change the other thing. But if I measured time on one side and frequency on the other particle, or spin up on one side and spin at 120 degrees on the other side, what happens then? And so what EPR's paper works out is that if we do that, we cannot get determined results. Either... There is some kind of hidden variable that says, "Okay, if if detector A measures down, then you better say this. And if detector A measures this, then particle B better measure the other thing. Right. So there's like a conspiracy of particular variables between the two particles that they have like they have the answers to the test. So that was, it was either that or somehow the particles magically communicate to each other instantaneously through space. And Einstein had problems with that. Non-locality was a huge issue. He's like, there better not be magic in my theory, right? <laughs> I just showed you that the speed of light is the maximum speed that things can go in the universe. And then we have this. And so we have, we have a problem. We have a logical problem here that we're going to try and verify. Um, so while we have shown have thus shown that the wave function does not provide a complete description, we left open the question of whether or not such a description exists. So he's basically saying, I don't like this. Maybe someone else can solve it. So this is where he left it. We believe, however, that such a theory is possible. So they're still in the mindset that math can correctly represent the physical world somehow that the physical world has a reality that can be represented in quantitative way. So he's hanging on to that thread. Enter Bell's theorem, 1964. So you've had about 30 years at this point of people arguing over this idea. If I remember correctly, it was Bohr and Einstein that had a series of letters back and forth about what what this meant. Um, So we have this idea that he said, okay, I'm gonna use math. I'm gonna see if math will provide me with enough tools, not to solve the problem, but to at least tell me which way the problem can be solved. Is it non-local interaction, or is it hidden variables and like a conspiracy theory? One of these better be true. So what he does is he says, um, I like this at the very, very end. It is the requirement of locality, or more precisely that the result of a measurement on one system be unaffected by operations on a distant system with which it has interacted in the past. That creates the essential difficulty. So here's what he did. He said we have two cases. We have hidden variables where each particle has a determined value of its spin along every single possible axis you can measure it on. And then we have the other set, which is an indeterminate direction of spin. So um, those of you who are colorblind, I apologize. I did try and label these as well. So let's say that a particle is measured and it's spin up, but that it spins along the other two axes could be changed. So let's say particle A always spin up. Particle B, I know has to be spin down. If A is up, B has to be down. Conservation of angular momentum or conservation of spin, up and down, has to be a pair. But the other directions are indeterminate. So. In this case, I just produced a couple. There's a lot of different permutations that you could put in here. What he worked out for you is that no matter what, no matter which combinations of measurements, if you're using this example setup, then the probability will always be greater than a third that you get different measurements for the two directions. So if I measure the vertical axis and the left axis, so the one that's at 120 degrees Counterclockwise from vertical. If I measure those two, then the probability of getting different measurements on those two axes is at least one third. Sometimes it's one, depending on your pair of states. Okay? If B is down here, sure, but could be projected onto this other axis, then what's that probability? Well, if I project that, I'm just taking the component of the spin along that new axis direction. And because this is a wave function, I need a probability squared. So the square, cosine of 60, if you don't have your unit circle memorized, is one half. So you square it and you get a quarter. So the indeterminate theory, that reality has no actual determined value along that axis, but that it has to be projected and it might be there, it might not be, gives you a probability of a quarter. Hidden variables gives you at least one third. So he works through all of this and says, what does our experiment tell us? So again, experimentally led observations. Then for at least one quantum mechanical state, the singlet state in the combined subspaces, the statistical predictions of quantum mechanics are incompatible with separable predetermination. Basically what he's saying here is that the system is not determined. The reality of that particle, it has spin half, sure. Which way it points, meh. Particle doesn't care. It know it points down if the other one's measured up. But if the other one's measured left, then it has to point right. It has to point in the 180 degrees. But if you measure in different directions, it can be whatever it wants. So the state that you have, the pairing here, is that you have no other option but an indeterminate reality. You have particles that have no fixed direction. So it's not like the planet is here. It's like, well, the electron could be there, but it could be somewhere else. It could be spin up. It could be spin down. And nothing, you, you don't know anything until you measure it. So physical reality is not a determined thing. That was what this paper laid out for us. And so where we are now, is something called the orthodox position. So I don't think that that was in the attachment that I sent from this book. But if you read this book, it's called Appearance and Reality, An Introduction to the Philosophy of Physics. This book does a really great job of laying out, without intensive mathematics, how all this works. So I gave you chapter six, but chapter seven is also pretty good. Um, For those of you who are listening online, Appearance and Reality, An Introduction to the Philosophy of Physics by Peter Coso. So you're in this situation where Reality is not a determined thing. My computer just died. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> you're done with all the fun pictures. Uh, so what we have is we have this world where reality is not a fixed thing. Right? We believe in an objective reality. There's an objective reality that exists. The things exist. But the attributes of those things are changeable. They are indeterminate. And that's where we are. So just a couple of examples that were on that last slide. Things called C quarks. Um, So if you look at an atom, right, protons, two ups, one down quark, but sometimes extra quarks will pop in and out of existence around them. They'll just appear and disappear. They are indeterminate whether or not they're there at that moment. So when you collide two protons at really high energy, you don't get four ups and two downs coming out of that result. You get a wide variety of things that split out of those two. So... In a collider, you don't just see six things. You see swaths of energy with different properties, and that's how you make the Higgs. You have enough indeterminacy of what's there to create new things. Um, I don't remember what the other example was. There was another fun example in there, um, and a fun picture, but that's it. So I think we are bang on time. Yes. And now we get questions.
2: Alright, so uh, are there any questions? So I
0: quickly looked it up, Pusso's book only had one review on Amazon.com and it was only two stars because the reviewer accused him of being too deep into the Copenhagen camp.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, so. I, yeah, so, he is, he does, he he provides what I consider to be a relatively even-handed interpretation, but he does okay. at some point go, Meh, I don't know, and no one knows, and it's fine. And that's usually where I end up with my students when we talk about wave functions. I'm like, well, but, but what is it really? I don't know. Shoulder shrug. So it's a um, it's a, a deep um, a really deep disjunct for those of us who study quantum mechanics or field theory or any of these things because we have the math as a tool and it serves us well to predict the reality, what we see. But it is dissatisfying to us as determinate people who interact with the world that is like, well, so-and-so is sitting here right now, and my water bottle is beside the podium. We don't see my water bottle jump to different locations. We don't see it turn upside down randomly. And so as people who touch and taste and see and feel, we expect things to have determined properties. And what we find here is none of those rules apply, and we have to trust math. And so we, we have this tool, and it does a good job, but it is it is fundamentally dissatisfying. And so when you read these books, you have to let go a little bit of your expectations of determinism, which is hard. I
0: guess playing on that, how do people who try to maintain a Bohmian mechanics review of it deal with Bell's theorem?
1: Just assuming that there is an actual thing. Um, so you can... You can say that there is a determinate property, but you have to give up locality. So you have to assume that there's superluminal somethings out there that are working for this. So Bell's inequality only specifies local hidden variables versus the indeterminate, not non-local hidden variables. So if you want to, um, if you want to assume that there's a possibility of non-local interaction, so instantaneous communication between these two entangled particles, then you can skip those there and assume that there is this force that acts to change the two particles that gives the results that you're looking for, if that makes sense. Um, Yes, you can throw that out there. No one likes it, so that's not what we do. Um, And we find that this probabilistic indeterminate state works pretty well, and so, it's good enough.
0: Yeah. So the hidden variable theory, right, that is like a local, it implies local realism.
1: That's usually how it's referred to as, as local hidden variables. So people say hidden variables they usually mean local hidden variables. So, yes.
0: So if we give up on that, is there, is, or are we saying that we have to adopt that there's this kind of action at a distance or is there a possibility for like a kind of non-local hidden variables?
1: So if, if we give up local hidden variables, what Bell showed us is that in the either or case, right? if you only pick hidden variables, local hidden variables, or this indeterminate state, then the indeterminate statements, that doesn't mean you can't pick non-local hidden variables and make up a new theory. right? And that's always going to be true in physics. Um, what we do is we build a body of observations and we refine our theory until it works. But once it works, we don't change it. So, I mean, in, in the things that are happening right now, where we're getting better measurements on all of this subatomic material, it may happen that the indeterminate state of quantum mechanics, this singlet probabilistic system, doesn't work for certain observations, and we'll have to reach to it. Um, and there are people out there who do this with um, general relativity and Newtonian gravity or dark matter. So they'll say, okay, Newtonian gravity and dark matter work to explain galaxy scattering and galactic rotation curves and X-ray distributions. And they say, okay, dark matter plus Newtonian gravity works. And most people like that solution. But there are people who extend gravity and say, okay, maybe not dark dark matter. Maybe a linear term in the gravitational expansion that only appears when R is really big. So you'd only see it on the galactic scale. And so you could always you could always propose that there is a different formulation that can solve the problem. The hard part is getting the scientific community to agree with you. <laughs> so
2: how when we look at the world, right, and the stuff that's actually out there, what what fraction of things that we deal with are actually chaotic and how many of them have like nice smooth analytic solutions? Right,
1: okay. One common example, the weather. The weather is very clearly chaotic, in that as you, if you look at the weather forecast, right, you can generally trust the next day because you know the current situation well. But if you try and propagate the current situation through too many steps of the equation, you get wildly diverging answers, which is where like 50% rain is usually the forecast if you go out past a week because they really have no idea. They're just hoping. Like previous years, it rains in May. It's probably going to rain. So the weather is an obvious one. The motion of the air in this room is one. So one of my favorite things has been looking at how people are modeling how COVID spreads to the air. And so they're like building models of rooms where the vents are, what speed that is moving at what speed people are breathing out at and how that mixing changes your probability of absorbing a infectious load of the virus right there's some non-zero probability that you'll get some viral particles but whether or not they'll be enough to create a systemic infection that's a probability that's like where are you sitting that day and is the person beside you creating a large wind shadow Right? Like, all of those things can sit change. Next sit next to large people, unless they're sick. Unless they're sick. Don't sit next to large people if they're sick. But like you can hide behind them if there's a bench and a sick person on the other side. Like, maybe that's close enough that the chaos theory will be in your favor. But otherwise, I don't know. Um, things like turbulence. So the aerodynamics of your car, right? A lot of cars nowadays have kind of the same shape because over the years we've refined how to reduce the chaotic behavior of the airflow and create more laminar behavior, which reduces drag, which makes you more energy efficient. That's why cars are getting lower to the ground. It's why trucks now have those little fins on the side and at the back to sort of reduce those vacuous uh, pockets. So those are all things, and it's, it's nuts. It's everywhere. And a lot of that behavior is like, I hate saying this, I'm sorry, everyone, chemistry, Is kind of like let's go with the group behavior we're not going to look at individual particles but we're going to look for the group behavior and see what its bulk properties are because physics i hate it when people say things well everything is physics and yes everything is physics but not on a practical level there's too much there's just too much and that's why we need the sister sciences to sort of help us out it's why we cannibalize mathematics all the time it's like You've got these tools. Let's just steal this one. We're going to steal this one. Like, string theory wasn't actually a a physics thing to start with. If I remember correctly, it was mathematicians and computer scientists trying to put something together. And this is like, ooh, doink. So, yeah, chaos is kind of everywhere. And I can't really say where it's not, except, like, in a vacuum with spherical objects. (laughs) That's it. You guys have heard that joke, right?
0: I'll
1: say it at the end if there's time
2: All right, so this is a a super naive question. Um, So I take it, roughly, there are these situations where things are not behaving predictably, and you're sort of stuck between just concluding, well, there must be some invariables here. We just haven't found them yet. Or, alternatively, the world is just deterministic. I mean, indeterministic, right? And so at a certain point, if, if the person who sides with determinism is someone who has given up on finding the hidden variables, right? So the question, I realize there's no general answer to, this, to the question I'm we about to ask, but I'm wondering if you can say something hand-waving about it. How do you know when to give up?
1: It's an excellent question. That's why Bell's theorem was so important. Because he was like, here's the fork in the road of when to give up. And let's, let's put it this way. When I give up on deterministic, predictable, or at least with a lot of brute force, predictable behavior, I give up on that if it's going to take more than my lifetime to solve it, or more than like my lifetime and my my student's lifetime, right? If it's to the point where it is not practical for me to attempt to solve it, again, me being a physicist, this is all about whether or not I can do the thing and whether or not it will serve a purpose. Um, I am technically a particle physicist, theorist, so I build models, but I'm not going to build a model that's not going to correspond to something I can do with it. So if I'm looking at the world and saying I could produce all of these possible different models that could do all of the things that bells uh, that, that are, could violate Bell's theorem, right, and not be indeterminate, I could produce all of those things. But if I can't design a test to really determine that, okay, determine uh, if I can't build a test to determine whether or not they're true, why bother? So it's, it's, it's purely practical. It depends on the person. Theorists tend to have that more like, a well, what if excitement. And so they're more likely to go down that path and try harder to get a model that will do the thing. And the experimentalists will be a little bit more like, can I do anything with it right now? Probably not. OK, you be in the corner with your pad of paper and your computer and you do the thing. But that it's really um, a personal disposition. And so
0: you're right in that that does vary. But uh, can I, so before you rejoin, i <laughs> <you and Jen, laughs> Yeah. I mean, so another way to approach this is, you know, if you woke up one morning and you heard a voice when you were asleep saying, Valerie, you're not going to solve this problem in your lifetime. Another approach might be, okay, I'm going to spend the rest of my career in the lab doing the experiments I know how to do, using the math that works on them, and maybe something really interesting and unexpected is going to come out of that rather
1: than trying to solve this problem. And sometimes in science that works. Right, and so it's the, can I use my time to build up the body of knowledge that may contribute to that? And so you're, you're building for the future, absolutely. Um, for example, my thesis was basically, I, like, I'm gonna take, so there's one Higgs in the standard model, there's two Higgs fields in a supersymmetric model in one of the many possible supersymmetric models. And I was like, what if I had four, right? I had had two pairs instead of just one pair. And I work out all those things and basically got to the point where the detectors we have on hand cannot measure this in any determinable way. So I can't tell the difference. And which is why people are like, cool, you did a thing. But they can't build off of it. So it's like I've, I've put something out there and it was new, right? And it was novel. And that's kind of what doing your doctorate is. And then people will come back to it maybe in 20, 30, 40 years and said, okay, this one didn't work. And we know that now, but there's this new thing. And if I combine the two, then we get more. And yeah, so it's it's always going to be a, a scene past the end of your nose. Um, and there's there's different places for everybody in that spectrum, in the, the concrete determinist, determinist, determinateness of your day-to-day activities. If you're a person who likes to see the results immediately, then there's a different role for you in the field than the person who loves spending ten years yelling at one problem or two hundred years, like in the case of the three body problem. I don't think that was a satisfying answer, but <laughs> right.
2: so, so this is sort of a follow up. I understand that if I see that, you know, it's just impossible to come up with a good theory, then I might say, well then, as far as I'm concerned, it's as if it's indeterministic. To me, it's just like indeterministic. I'll never know. But it's quite another thing to say, therefore, reality is indeterministic in itself. And that it just seems like a huge logical leap. Mm-hmm. So, like, I, there must be some, um, you know, assuming the universe is going to stop at some point, there's some digit of pi that we'll never be able to calculate out to that digit mm-hmm. But from that, I wouldn't conclude that it's indeterminate what that digit is. I right. just said we'll never know what it is.
1: Right, it's not that the last digit could be five, six, seven. Right. It is six, but I may not find it.
2: Right. So how do you?
1: Where do people come? To,
2: where do people come to the conclusion? Not only that, to us subjectively, it might as well be indeterministic, but it just is indeterministic.
1: Right. Um, yeah, that's an actually a really interesting one, and it's it's a, a current topic of debate. If you're looking at black holes, like is the interior of black hole indeterminate, or is it a thing that we just can't see? And no one has a good answer for that. Like there's all kinds of really interesting theories about what might be happening inside of a black hole. Maybe it's a pinched off universe. Maybe it is a true singularity. Maybe it's whatever. Um, Maybe it's a neutron star, but just super compactified. Like maybe it's just a really dense physical object. We don't know because we can't see it. And so there are lots of theories. Everyone picks one that they find to be most satisfying. and unfortunately, that's all we can do. Because as an observable, motivated science, if I don't have the observables, I can't motivate a different theory, and so you get stuck. Okay. Yep.
0: There's something really weird out there. So this might just be totally out of place, but I want to bring in angels. Um,
1: so. <laughs> are they dancing on pins?
0: <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, well, so so it's interesting. This so like action at a distance thing. Like one at different times, I've like. Not people talking about this, I like, of angels, right? So, so there's, like, this question: where is Gabriel, right? Well, he's immaterial, so he's like, no, but if it turns out Gabriel's, like, you know, performing some message over here and they're, well, where's Gabriel? Here. I mm-hmm. mean, yeah, point to where, you point to where he's he's acting. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we think this is problematic because we have this, like, Cartesian grid notion of distance. Not to work. So, I mean, we have these particles that we take to be two things that are acting what are like what if we just say they're one?
1: And that's a lot of what field theory starts to do. It, it gets you into the beginning of, instead of treating individual particles as individual things, you have a field that exists all through space. So like the Higgs field or the electron field that, that is coexistent at all locations and has different amplitudes at different points. So you have like the total universe has X electrons. And so this wave function has a probability at all times of producing X electrons, my specific number of electrons in the universe. But where they are has to be connected to every other electron because no electron can hold the same state. They're fermions. They can't have the same existence. So they either can't be in the same place or they can't have the same momentum at the same time like they can't have all the same properties and so you've got this this idea very much like that of an angel field and that there's the angel Gabriel who has his own field and can appear and disappear as the field itself fluctuates through space if you want to pretend that this is usually how I try and understand things like this is I pretend that my universe is only the three dimensions of something with more that angels can propagate through, like strings and brains, um, so they can appear and disappear in different locations without being non-local, because space isn't what I think space is. Um, and so I, I, I apologize to both mathematicians and philosophers for punting <laughs> that question in their directions. That's what happens.
2: All right, I'm going to step in and ask you a question. Um, so we mentioned, you know, you mentioned the Copenhagen interpretation. Um, uh, Bohmians come up. Um, there is at least a, a certain subset of physicists that find things like the many worlds interpretation uh, of quantum mechanics extremely co- compelling, in part because of the way they are really being deterministic. Um, I'm just curious your own thoughts on where that fits in, and uh, not just like personally, but in in your experience in the community, how people how, how do physicists treat the many worlds interpretation?
1: Yeah, many the many worlds interpretation and the anthropological principle are usually they don't use them. They don't think much about them. They just say, I don't want to try and think this hard about why life exists or why our universal constants are so finely tuned. And so I say, there are infinitely many universes where they're not finely tuned and we just happen to be in the one where they are. And that's usually where they leave it. And I find that very dissatisfying. Um, I like the idea of a divine creator who organizes and sets up the system in such a way that I can exist. That being said, if i'm if i'm completely agnostic about that the physics doesn't say that there has to be a divine creator it's divine creators being non-material non-physical universe observables the science can't say something concrete about them they can imply things about the beauty of the structure and and we can feel motivated and and compelled by that beauty to look for something more um, but if you are an agnostic physicist, you don't have that reasoning, you don't like it, you say, I, you could just say, well, in many universes, here we go. And so they, they use it as a catch-all. They're not, none of them are really big proponents of it. They're, it's not like they're they're stand their ground. They just sort of say, that's why. Cool.
0: But I thought actually Father's question was specifically about the many worlds interpretation of wave function collapse. That every uh, time there's a wave function collapse, all those possibilities occur, but we only perceive one timeline, which I personally find to be the most bizarre and and absurd. And you talk about
2: <laughs> angels
0: dancing on the head of a pin, which Lawrence Principe assures us Aquinas never had. <laughs> How many universes can you create to dance on the head of a pin? What do you think of that interpretation? That's, what yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. Um, so the idea that every time a measurement is made, The system collapses, and there are infinitely many universes from that measurement. I don't even want to think about the countableness of that. Um, I think it's interesting. Um, There was, who was it? There was a philosopher I read in undergrad who talked about the creator having a possible set of worlds, and choosing the most good one from it. Is it Leibniz? On the origination of the universe?
2: Yeah,
1: yeah, or, yeah. thank you. Um, so Leibniz's essay, and I found that one really compelling. It, it, it looks to me, instead of a god who's a clockwork god of a deterministic world where you start X and everything goes, um, as one who says every time you interact with an object, he is choosing the best outcome for the next thing for the next thing, for the next thing. Um, And that also reminds me of, I think it was Orthodoxy in Chesterton, where he comments on the church, be like riding a wild horse, navigating through a a field of possibilities and like wildly swinging back and forth between those options. And it it reminds me of that, that God is not just clockwork, but he's there with us in all instances, not controlling, but saying, like, you did a thing, what what in the indeterminate world can I do to sort of help and navigate and evolve that in a direction that is for the most good of the next thing? Um, and so, yes, the many worlds that you collapse one, you get all possible measurements and all possible universes. But as a believer in a God who created a universe, I like to see it that way. And I, I can't imagine that he would create universes that would choose those less good options.
2: Uh, let's take again uh
1: Dr. <laughs>